How's it going, Brain? All right, man. I'm not going to lie. I haven't really had my shit together lately, so I just listened to y'all's podcast for the first time to try and get the vibe. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm going to continue listening because I liked it. Nice. But y'all talked about ketamine for like 10 minutes or something? <laughs> yes, we did. <laughs> oh, the Rev Left episode, yeah. yeah and right. I'm going to be completely honest with you guys. I accidentally ate too many mushrooms this morning, so that's where I'm at. Okay. Um, this is going to be great. I think <laughs> Uh, I like went to a friend of mine, like, hey, we're supposed to fucking guest record with these other dudes, and I ate too many mushrooms. What do I do? And he's like, just do your normal thing. Every time you eat mushrooms, you talk about communism nonstop anyway. Yeah. There you go. Boom. That'll work. It's perfect for this. There's actually a really great video of me from a party where I ate too many mushrooms, and I'm explaining to a 10 year old that somehow ended up at this party <laughs> about how awesome like communism and burnouts are. Hell yeah. <laughs> Dude, you're the perfect podcast for that then. Yeah, that's what I'm about. I went to a music festival, uh, Muddy Roots, a couple of weeks ago, and and definitely did my thing. Where I just ate mushrooms for 12 hours and yelled at people about Chevys and communism. Fuck yeah. Yeah, that's, that's who I am as a person. That's awesome. Yeah, I stayed real. There was a couple of like, there was like a bunch of biker types there, and I was just like, all right, these are people I should not even mention politics around. Like mm-hmm. a handful of mushrooms <laughs> later, and I'm like, I'm a communist. What the fuck are you gonna do about it? <laughs> and they're, like, they're like, we're cool with that, dude. It's fine. I'm like, yeah, bring it. Like, no, no, it's <laughs> they're like, hey, no, we're, we're not who you think we are. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, you're not. <laughs> Why are you trying to fight us? We're agreeing with you. <laughs> the amount of tiptoeing oh, that everyone in the left does. What's that? I just broke my fucking toe. What? No. What? what happened? When I got up, I sat back down, I'm like, my toe feels a little weird. And then it's bending in a different direction than the other toe. Well, bend it back. Put it back in the right direction. Amazing. All right, everybody. Welcome back to the Turnless Podcast. I'm Mike, he, him. And tonight I'm here with Ward, he, him. Jaron, he, him. And tonight we have special guests from the Cars and Comrades Podcast. We have Connor, he, him. Zach, he, him. Brian, he, him. And Brandon, he, him. How are all you guys doing? Answer in any order that you feel like. <laughs> Pretty good. Doing great. I'm doing great. I'm not worried about my toe. <laughs> this motherfucker. <laughs> what an intro. But this is what I was hoping for. Well, my toe was pointing in the wrong fucking direction, so... Or the right direction. You never know. Maybe it was yeah. always meant to be that way. It is making an L. Is it pointing to the left? <laughs> no, no so takers? Come on. My toe's making <laughs> No, it was good. No, but seriously, it's good to have you guys on. I've listened to your podcast for a while now, ever since I found you guys. I was actually introduced by my friend Phil, um, another car guy and fairly leftist kind of dude. A little more lib. I'm going to fuck with Phil right now. Phil, you're kind of a liberal. <laughs> um, but no, seriously, I've, so I've been listening to your podcast while. I like it. Even as somebody who's not into cars, I find the discussions that you guys have about your cars entertaining because they're usually things I can empathize with. When you guys were talking about your recent car projects, I was thinking of uh, whenever Ward and I get into our sporting goods channel and people who are uninitiated jump in there and they just sit back and watch what the fuck we're talking about. And 
Yeah, we could go on for a while. I, I can totally understand where you guys are coming from. So it's good to have you guys on. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, yeah thank, cool. thanks for having us. We, uh, we greatly appreciate it. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that you are a listener because I personally have never listened to our podcast. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, I when Connor told us uh, about your podcast, I was like, oh, that's kind of cool. And I listened to I, I especially liked the, the episodes you all did about Cuba and the revolution. That was really interesting. Yeah, the Cuba one was good. Yeah, we had a lot of fun with those, and we had you know particularly good guests uh, with Comrade Howell talking about Cuba. Yeah. Um, um, so tonight our topic is going to be Walter Ruther. Now this is a figure that I had never heard of until Connor you brought him up. I knew I wanted to have you guys on. Reached out to Connor, thought uh, might as well have you guys on and see what kind of topic you might want to cover. And you mentioned Walter Ruther, and so I had to look him up because, like I said, I'd never heard of what this guy had even done. But you said he's a major socialist figure and a labor organizer, and indeed he was. And so he has a very interesting story. And one of the things that Connor and I have been chatting about is that this guy absolutely could have a movie or several movies made about him. And now there have been some documentaries, but nothing like no dramas or anything that I know. And I feel like there could be some kind of like Hollywood, if not blockbuster, at least something close to it. I feel like a lot of people wouldn't they wouldn't even understand. They'd be like, oh, I'm sure half of that was made up. And it's like, yeah, nope. <laughs> Yeah, nope. All <laughs> no, real. I, mean, I feel like the Irishman is right up the same alley. Like if you like that movie, you will like hearing about the Walter Ruther story because it's a lot of similar themes going on. But I mean, I hesitate to say that that would be a good thing for a Hollywood movie just because they'd probably give it to like Aaron Sorkin and he'd do the the Abby Hoffman treatment to it and fuck it up. Oh, yeah. But and make it some, you know, lib Oscar bait bullshit. But it, it's a very fascinating story. And uh, I think, yeah, definitely it would like we've dipped our toe into the Walter Ruther story on a couple other episodes before. You know, he's kind of crossed paths with some other characters that we were talking about. Yeah, um, and, he's pretty unavoidable. Actually. Right. Yeah. No, I feel um, like if you so, were going to do a real Hollywood movie about him, you'd have to give it to Boots Riley or else it would get. Again, like yeah. you said, turn into a totally lib story. They would make him like the anti-communist, but like if Boots did it, oh, that would be awesome. Yeah, well, you'd have well, a good movie. I have to interject here. Uh, I found at least one quote with backing. I couldn't find who said it, but uh, that Walter Ruther dealt the single greatest blow against American communism of any person in history. Yep. Who said, who um, said this? I, I couldn't find the source of the quote, but that being said, like he had some ties to socialism, and there was some like theoretical affiliations with. Depending on who you talk to, he either, either was a, a card-carrying member of the Communist Party. Uh, spoiler alert, he was not. Yeah, he um, was not. He might have attended some meetings out of curiosity, which was a more common thing to encounter at, during mm -hmm. that era of like the 1930s. But uh, he purged communists out of the UAW in the 30s. He ousted several uh, vice presidents who were like, when he was first elected president of the UAW, his vice president, which was a democratically elected position all its own, like, uh, so it was elected in addition to his election, mm. um, was a member of CPUSA. And I didn't find any of the real, like, specifics on what happened that got him to lose an election. But, like, when we, when Connor and I started discussing uh, Walter Ruther, like, he, he kind of jokingly gave me the uh, position of just being contrary because that's what I'm best at. Mm -hmm. But as I got reading more and more, I was like, okay, like, there's a lot of positives to be learned from this figure, but there's also a lot of valid criticisms that need to be addressed more than they are. Yeah. If you're, like, uh, an AOC fucking, like, liberal progressive, uh, yeah, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, now that you say that, it makes me think of him a little differently, sort of like an FDR saved capitalism by instituting the most progressive policies that we've ever had in the U.S. up to date. 
Um, so that maybe you're saying the same thing. Like, yeah. um, there's, but, I mean, continue with the MC thing because that's very relevant to, you know, internet drama, which I love and, uh, you know, <laughs> stuff that's going on lately. I was going to say, like, simply, like, like from that crowd, he's probably the perfect figure. He's the labor organizing version of, I don't know, I'm too high to fucking figure that out right now. <laughs> he's a character that, like, if you're, a, like, a lib, then he was perfect. You know, he was. He was essentially the AOC of the labor uh, movement in the United States, you know, from the 1930s through to the 1960s. I would not agree with that because he did actually accomplish things. Um. (laughs) Sorry, Brian, did you have something real quick before we actually get started? Yeah, I mean, I was just going to, you know, kind of what you all said. I I was going to say he's basically the best lib that has ever been. (laughs) Like, I think I was saying that in the Slack channel when we were talking about him. I mean... I, I wouldn't put him up there with, uh, like, maybe MLK, but he's one of the, the best figures. He kind of exemplifies what the best that you can do in the liberal world order, like um, working through the system, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's well put, I think. Yeah. So let, and, let's and be honest with all think... the libs who think that you can change the system from within and see where we are now yeah. after figures <laughs> like Walter Ruther and MLK and whoever else. If I can double back real quick... Uh, I think it would be incredibly funny if, like, anybody made a movie about Walter Ruther as, like, a biopic because uh, IATSE is about to go on strike for the same shit that he was fighting for 60 and 70 years ago. Like, yeah, um, I actually work in the film industry nowadays. So, yeah, like the same stuff that he was against in the 30s and 40s, we're still fighting for. Like, but make, make no mistake they will give it to you and they will take it right the fuck back. Yeah, and, pretty much. And Brandon, I think it would be really cool to see a Boots Riley uh, movie about uh, the Revolutionary uh, Union movement rather than Walter Ruther. That would be the story I want to hear. Yeah. Which, uh, are you guys familiar with the Revolutionary Union movement in Detroit? That'll be part two. Part two. <laughs> well, well, we'll get into it, but uh, if I could paraphrase really quick, uh, within the UAW, in the late 60s, early 70s, a faction developed called the Revolutionary Union Movement, which were a Marxist-Leninist group within the UAW who were fighting. Like, it was pretty much, uh, they weren't really black nationalists, but it was, like, exclusively black, and they were trying to fight for the rights of, like, their brothers and sisters on the shop floor, because, and that's why I I say that the legacy of Walter Ruther really needs analyzed, because, like, Ostensibly, he was fighting the good fight and made gains, but on the shop floor, no, they were still there was still overt racism. You had Klansmen like running the shop in some instances. Like there is a I, dude, I found a great video clip of a protest that uh, Drum put on, and a thing that I've come across a whole bunch is that they always refer to Walter Ruther as the redhead. Did, did you come across that a bunch, Connor? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Uh, it's really great coming across a Drum like video of drum members chanting behead the redhead <laughs> they, yeah there, there were factions within the uaw that were no fan of walter ruther for it's i don't know could he have, he could have done more he could have been a lot worse it's hard to say it's a complicated yeah. story yeah so and i think that's why it's gonna well, be really well, speaking of a complicated story let's uh let's, yes. let's get started so if we could so, just like I'm going to hand it over to you, Connor, because, you know, thankfully you have done the hard work of writing up the notes and everything. So I'm perfectly happy to hand it off to somebody else to sort of run the show uh, at any opportunity. So, yeah, if you could, I'll leave it off to you where to start. But I feel like the briefest way to say it is probably that he was a union organizer for the majority of his life as far as like we're concerned. So if you could just take it from there, please. 
Yeah, so um, Walter Ruther was uh, the president of the UAW. He was elected in the after World War II. Uh, he became the president of the United Auto Workers, which was at the time the largest union uh, in the United States. He also, after that, was the president of the CIO, which is the Congress of Industrial Organizations. Um, so he was president concurrently of both. He was a socialist, but he was an anti-communist socialist. Name. Yeah. The way that you usually get is class traitor. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, so he got more conservative or more complacent over time. To be, you know, fair to him, I'm, he lived through several assassination attempts uh, and likely was, you know, assassinated for all his effort and all his effort in denouncing communists and trying to be more quote unquote legitimate. He still wound up dead in very suspicious circumstances. Mm -hmm. um, so, so that's kind of the intro. He was an incredibly influential and important figure in the labor movement and in U.S. politics um, post World War II. Yeah, he, he played a role in the civil rights struggle in the 60s. Yes, and he had personal relationships with several U.S. presidents. So, and Martin Luther Jr. The Walter Ruther philosophy was that labor was designed to change society. It was, it was about more than increasing wages on the shop floor. It was about creating a better society. And he used this uh, to get unions politically involved. And this political involvement was, you know, I call it playing by the rules. This was the effort to play things nicely, you know, negotiate with power. And ultimately, I think the takeaway is while there were some successes with that, it seemed to come with a very heavy price tag. Um, so that's kind of the the broad strokes. And I've kind of put my notes into two distinct time periods. So there's really before World War II and then there is after World War II. Um, after World War II is when he actually became president of the UAW and the, later the CIO. But before that, he was instrumental in organizing massively famous strikes. And he and his brother, Victor, and his other brother, Roy, um, are a big part of the reason Detroit became a union town in the first place. So that's kind of where the story is going to go. I do have some notes here for some things to think about as we go through this, because I think this is an interesting story all its own and we could tell it just straight. And I think it's a great story. I think it's better if we try and think about things as we go through the story and we try and learn what we can. So I, I kind of have like a few questions that I, I wrote down ahead of time as I was going through my research of things that I just kind of themes that I, I saw in the story um, that I think are valuable to think about. Although I don't know that I'm going to be able to draw any conclusions to these questions. Of course, you would maybe answer them differently depending on your ideology, but I think they're important to actually think about and engage with the story in a, in a substantive way. Um, so to that end, I, I think we should think about, you know, how, how did union power actually rise in the first place? And then why did it fall in the U.S.? Uh, what can we learn from the shortcomings of the strategy pursued by Walter Ruther? then how should we think about the dynamic between getting power within the capitalist system and building movements outside of the centers of power? So, you know, is, is having influence with presidents or politicians um, actually worth anything in the long run? Um, and I think that's a question that we're still trying to answer today. And we see it debated online all the time. Um, and I don't know that there is a right answer. So the next one would be, um, 
How should we think about making compromises and giving concessions to get gains for working people? Uh, again, no, that's arguably... <laughs> well, the, the problem is, the reason these are questions is, unions are likely our most powerful tool for the working class. The problem is, the job of the union is in fact making those concessions. So, unions themselves as a strategy kind of undermine what makes them important at the same time. It's a double-edged sword, I think. Right. Uh, and I think that's kind of what we learned from this story is there's, there's pluses and minuses, but we kind of have to, we have to think very critically about how we engage in these struggles. So I also have, um, how should we think about political education for union membership? Is it really better to have larger unions or more radical unions? Um, is there kind of, how should we actually think about that, that big tent approach versus something a little bit more ideologically pure? Um, what sorts of alternatives might exist to the political engagement we saw from unions in the 20th century? So should we think about a separate workers' party um, or a complete refusal to engage in electoral politics? Uh, what could we do in the 21st century assuming unions actually regain some power? Um, how should we think about the very small, pivotal moment throughout history that shaped the world as we know it? One of the things I come across in this research is there are a lot of cases where there's these broader trends and, you know, these huge struggles, but a lot of the wins and losses come down to these like very small pivotal moments that occur completely outside of workers control. And how should we actually consider how, how to approach those sorts of situations uh, going forward? Because there is, there's a huge role that chance plays in a lot of these movements. Um, and I find that very unfortunate, but Perhaps there's ways to hedge against it, or, or maybe not, I don't know. And how should we think about the very real pressures placed on unions by the global capitalist system? Since we know capital can move abroad and workers can't, and there is actual real competition between workers and businesses abroad, unions seem to kind of be in an ever-weakening position by their very nature. So going forward, are unions even a viable option, given these sorts of pressures? Um, and then how should we think about legality in future labor struggles. If the game's actually rigged by the ruling class and lawmakers, like we know it is, can anything be gained by playing by their rules? What alternatives might exist, and what are the costs of abandoning past notions of legality? Uh, and I think that's actually one of the bigger questions that uh, I think we need to consider going forward, is kind of playing by those rules, um, or not. So anyway, I hope that serves as just a little bit of a guide to how I started thinking about this kind of research and see what we can maybe come up with through the story. Uh, hopefully it answers some of those questions. I don't know. I think it'll be an interesting thing. I have a lot of opinions on a lot of what you said. But I'm I mean, me to too. I'm trying not to like go into a, a rant on any of these questions, really. I'm trying to just put them out there as something that I thought about and something I think we should all think about and even have conversations amongst each other. Like I said, I wrote them down. I'm not necessarily going to answer them for you. I just think they're worth thinking about. I think a really important thing is that we come at Walter Rothbard, like rejecting the great men of history thing. Yes. Like, because everything that I came across about Walter Rothbard was just like painting him as like the MLK of, of the working man sort of thing. Like it was, it was all glamour. And yeah, uh, there was a lot of dirt underneath that, like a whole lot. And I'm not going to condemn him for a lot because I do realize that he was actually trying to make gains for working people and he had shortcomings. And a lot of times he was doing what he thought that he had to 
do to work within the system. And I think, you know, that's where it went wrong, man. He was at the, the helm of something major and they had actual leverage. They could have said, fuck the system. We are work like general strike. He had a lot of weapons in his arsenal that he did not use. Yeah. There's things to be learned from him, but there's a lot of critiques to be made too. And it pains me to see how few of them actually get made. Well, hopefully we'll be able to do it here. Oh, I'll do it loudly. Oh, good. Yes. <laughs> so, um, in this story, I kind of want to introduce a few of the uh, villains that we're going to see in this story. Uh, a lot of them you'll know. Some of them might be surprising. We also have a few heroes to introduce after that. Uh, so the villains in this story are, of course, capitalism, number one villain, every story, always capitalism. Um, the next would be the auto companies. Our other big villain uh, of this story is going to be Harry Bennett, which is Henry Ford's most beloved henchman. And then we've got... Henry Ford himself, the old bastard, J. Edgar Hoover, another familiar enemy of the left, Robert A. Taft, and Fred A. Hartley Jr. And if those names sound familiar, you're probably thinking of the Taft-Hartley Act, which uh, brings us to largely to where we are today. Yeah. Um, Hold on one second. Did you have something, Brian? Um, I was just going to plug a couple of podcasts. I, you might have been getting to this, uh, Connor, but... Uh, the dollop did a really good episode on um, yes, yes. Uh, Harry Bennett. I just looked it up. It was uh, two sixty one Henry Ford's henchman live in Detroit with uh, guest Matt Chrisman, and then also for our, our own podcast um, episodes uh, seven, eight, and nine about how Detroit auto workers built a revolutionary movement about the different revolutionary union movements, and then also we uh, episode eleven shit boxes and the Battle of the Overpass. Uh, which we talk a little bit about the UAW and Walter Ruther. So sorry yeah, if that I messed up your flow there, but uh, no, actually that's that's fine. Um, because I will at some point I will list our sources, and then I'm sure in the show notes we'll we'll find a way to put links. Um, I have lots and and lots of sources. They're all very good, and you should check them all out to get a better picture of the story. Because yeah, how how good am I really gonna do? But <laughs> not fair. <laughs> so. Back to our list of villains. Um, one of the other big villains, which we're probably not going to talk too much about, but he's a real fucking bastard, and you should know his name anyway. Uh, his name is George Meany. He's literally his name was Meany, and he was a mean bastard. And uh, he was actually the president of the uh, American Federation of Labor when they merged with the CIO under Walter Ruther. Uh, George Meany really sucked. He really, really sucked. So all the critiques, the, the very firm stance that you should, the union's job was to benefit its workers and basically like to stay out of any sort of societal role, right? Yes. And also that that group of workers that should be protected is like really, really small, <laughs> very particular. Um, and so, yeah, he's a bastard and uh, he controlled a much larger federation of unions than the CIO, which was always the more radical, despite its anti-communist sorts of leanings later on was that the guy with the the real bushy eyebrows george meany or am i thinking of someone else a lot of people have bushy eyebrows <laughs> I'll, I'll have to look up a photo of him he did uh he, he was often pictured with a big cigar in his mouth so he was kind of that image of the uh the gruff union leader with the yeah, cigar see? in his mouth and all that yeah you know all the soviet prop like anti-capitalist propaganda posters he was the model <laughs> <laughs> Other villains we've got in this story are uh, the mob, uh, the CIA. Of course, that's 
Gotta throw that in there. Um, LBJ and President Nixon. So a lot of, you know, familiar names in there um, and some maybe unexpected ones. Like I said, it's a very interesting story. The heroes in this story, which in this case, uh, hero might be a bit of a strong word. So we're going to go with protagonists. Um, our, our main protagonists are going to be uh, Walter, Victor, and Roy Ruther, um, all very involved in the labor movement. They were all brothers, hugely influential. And yeah, that's who the story is about. Um, yeah. other heroes, like, I'm going to be critical of them, but make no mistakes. That was a family that was dedicated to the labor struggle. You can question the way they went about things, but they all like at least two of the brothers got shot over this shit. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Walter and Victor both like Victor was the one that had his eye blown out of his fucking head by a shotgun blast, right? Yeah, part two. Yeah, part two. <laughs> I mean, I was gonna say like not to derail things again, but I was gonna ask you, Brandon. Yeah. Since you're obviously taking the um the devil's advocate side of everything, like when you say that he had tools in his arsenal that he didn't use, I was going to ask you, like, just in your opinion, do you think he did that because he didn't really believe in the struggle or because he was just trying to be tactful? Um, and you don't have to answer that question right now. Like we can sort of get into it later. I don't know. Uh, no, I think that's valid. I, I should preface this with saying that like my real introduction to learning about the history of Walter Ruther is rooted in coming across criticisms of him because I started uh, doing research on the revolutionary union movement. Mm -hmm. And that's how he kind of came into my like knowledge base was initially strictly from criticisms of him by actual leftists. Yeah. So a lot of what I know about him is critical. And I did come originally to be somewhat of the devil's advocate, but like I've kind of softened on both fronts where like, I don't think he was a strictly good or bad figure. When I said he had other like weapons in his arsenal, like, first of all, I'm saying that from the perspective of somebody who's like about to go on strike. So sorry, uh, still on mushrooms. Um, I mean, just, just spoil it for me. Is he based or cringe? That's all I need to know. Like, I don't, <laughs> I'm going to go with cringe, but like, yeah. you can't question his motives. He was truly dedicated to the working class project. He's um, cringe with based characteristics is what I'm hearing. <laughs> yes. Cringe with based characteristics. Sorry, what do you have, Brian? Um, I was just going to say, there's that uh, documentary um, that Connor, you shared on the Slack channel. I forget the name of it. Brothers on the Line. Yeah, um, there's a moment in that where they have a recording of him talking to LBJ and just totally getting cucked by LBJ. Uh, basically, like, LBJ's like, no, you're not going to do anything crazy, are you? And, and Ruther's like, oh, no, I'll be a good boy, and, and I won't stir the pot too much. <laughs> I'll just be over here eating my soy. Leave me alone. Part <laughs> two. Part two. I will never question Walter Ruther's genuine early dedication to the labor struggle. He became a politician by the end. Um, yeah. Yeah. yeah I, don't, mm. I don't think that that's really like avoidable in, in that part of his story. Uh, and in that respect, yeah, he's cringe as fuck, but like, I cannot emphasize enough, like regardless of the dude's motives, he got shot like a couple of times and had yeah. like, the, there was the one sabotage on a plane that he was supposed to take. Two. Oh my god, I mean, all the good stuff is in part two. I mean, honestly, everything in this episode is going to be in part two because we're now at like half an hour left of our set-aside recording time. We're obviously going to run over. Most of the stuff is going to be in part two, but um, Jaren, sorry, do you have something? So I'm, I'm not too familiar with his particular story, but there is just an observation about 
union involvement organizing and such that kind of falls into actually one of the questions that was asked before. But the thing is, is like, okay, no matter what your opinion is on whether there needs to be a, a full scale revolution to get rid of capitalism, right? And this is part of like, you know, should unions be political or should they go for the big tent approach? The reality is, is like, okay, there are some people who are ready to go to fucking war for this shit, throw everything away, go into conflict and just let the chips fall where they go. And hopefully we get a revolution with better material conditions. And then there's other people who unionize because they just want to get some like better fucking pay for their family and they don't want to go to war and they just want to have a better life. And no matter what your manifestation of a union is, you're going to have both of those types of individuals. So if you're leading a union or in a position of power in a union, if you want to keep that union together, even just for bargaining rights, much less overthrowing some shit, you have to placate to both of the camps. So regardless of how big your tent approach becomes, you're going to have to, at some point, mitigate with the powers that be in some circumstance. And again, I don't know how this plays into our story here necessarily, but like that is an observation that was made by Albert Parsons, who famously just wanted to fuck up everybody and everything, uh, which was very well warranted. But like, how can you lead people if you tell the man that just wants more money to feed his family, no, that's not our goal. Our goal is to destroy the system. I'm just going to take this opportunity to shout out Daniel Ortega, you know, as espoused by Ramiro Funes on our last couple episodes about Nicaragua, talking about how Daniel Ortega was such a, just a political genius as far as maneuvering his revolution, because he was able to get everyone to follow the, the middle path between the ultra left people who just wanted to burn everything down and the class collaborationists who wanted to work with the bourgeois. And he was able to find the middle ground between the two and have a successful revolution. So. Just, you know, call back, slight call back, because I just enjoyed uh, Ramiro Funes's info so much when he was talking about Daniel Ortega in that way. Like, for me, Daniel Ortega is a figure now that I think more about than I did before. He's just fucking based in my eyes. But uh, yeah. sorry, go ahead, Brandon. Basis for... I think that's why the story of Walter Ruther is somewhat complicated, because at a time when a lot of unions in the U.S. were taking like a meanie approach where it's like, I'm, I only give a fuck about a small like subset of people. And I only care about like their working conditions and their wages. Um, Walter Ruther really did force the union into the civil rights struggle too, which I will not criticize. Like he was like, he paid bail money to get a bunch of people out of jail after demonstrations and stuff like that. Like he did good things, but he also purged the entire fucking UAW of communists of leftists, like, because before he became the president of the UAW, we had socialists and communist leaders in the UAW. Now, to be fair, I gotta, I gotta interrupt here. While I don't agree with his purging of communists at the time, and he, I think he used it to purge people he had a strong political differences with, he, he was always an anti-communist. So I think he used it to his advantage. However, we have to understand that the Taft-Hartley Act at the time made sure that there were no communists in the unions and they had to sign non-communist affidavits certifying that they did not have communists in their unions. So legally speaking, there was no way around that. I mean, there was lying, there was this and that. Some other tactics could have been used, but by the law, 
communists were not allowed to be running unions. And so you get into this shaky territory that, you know, we were put into a very rough situation. And the Taft-Hartley Act, we'll, we'll talk about later, is pretty disastrous. Um, no, and it, it was... does come up on... The one other episode that we did do regarding unions was the one with the IWW. And they had a lot of good information specifically about the Taft-Hartley Act. And, I mean, the big takeaway from it was that it was disastrous for labor rights in, in the U.S. Now, I'm not sure if I want to reveal this now or later. I think I'm going to wait till later. But there was a way that Walter Ruther could have helped to get rid of that part of the Taft-Hartley Act through the Supreme Court. Evidently, though, he didn't choose to do that. And that's kind of a part that's not really talked about very often is because people don't make that connection. But um, we will get into that a little bit later. So this is where the cringe comes in. I got you. This is where the cringe comes in. <laughs> Mike, let's let's be real. Like, if he had been a genuinely effective anti-capitalist, like, no one would have heard of him. Like, we're we're pretty good about burying those yeah. fucking people. And, yeah. and <laughs> I mean, that was my first question. Like, why have I not heard of this guy before? If he's such a you know prominent labor organizer and he was such a big figure in leftist history, considering how deep into leftist history I am, and this would be why. Because it's not even that so much. That it's like an act of burying. It's just like. There's other things to talk about and in an immediate sphere where you have to like focus on one thing or another and everybody's attention span lasts about five minutes. Yeah, you just maybe don't talk about them as much and then people don't know about them. Like, I would say that if, if you're not familiar with Walter Rother, it's, it's less of the like innate nature of uh, capitalism's way of uh, washing all of that aside and more just like there's a lot of fucking history yeah. In the last hundred years, and how many other you know uh, union presidents can you name? Like, it's not one of those things that gets taught heavily. Jimmy Hoffa can't name my own fucking union president right now. So I think that there's a certain extent to where, because like he's got archives in like some colleges uh, in Detroit, and I think he's from Wheeling, West Virginia. So I found some information yep. with archives in his honor there. Like he's not totally forgotten. Honestly, I'm surprised that he's not like put on a pedestal because like he's he's the fucking RBG of labor rights, man. Like, <laughs> no, don't worry, I'm putting that pussy on a pedestal. All right, sorry. Let's <laughs> without too much further ado, let's let's let Connor get into the actual story. Let's start with Walter yeah, Ruther's story. We're setting up this story. All right, Connor. All right. Sorry, I will stop delaying you. Nope, nope, no problem. All right, so um, stop delaying you too, Connor. You go ahead and you do your thing. <laughs> All right, so back to our. Uh, our introduction of the heroes of the story here. Um, so we introduced the uh, Ruther brothers. Our next big hero of the story is going to be Janora Johnson Dillinger. She's an awesome character. Can't wait till we get into the GM sit down strike. And of course the women's auxiliary and the emergency brigades. I, I did make an effort here. Um, women have a tendency to be written out of history or just, you know, forgotten about. Um, in this story, the women's auxiliary played a huge role in the unionization efforts at the big three. Um, so they are incredibly important and their tactics should absolutely be remembered for future labor struggles. Another hero we've got is uh, Catherine Gels, and she's a hero for punching one of the Ford service department goons who were trying to beat up the women there. Our other hero here is going to be Stairs. Hmm. <laughs> go ahead and tease this. Uh, I know date, the story. The, oh, do you? This the stairs are going to become relevant for April seventh, nineteen forty-seven. 
Yeah, I mean, um, you can just listen to the dollop episode for a spoiler, but it's going to take you two hours to get there, so it's not really a spoiler. So. <laughs> yeah, it's not really a spoiler. Yeah. It might take you eight hours to get to it on this stream. We'll, we'll see. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then uh, our last hero is going to be the Dodge Revolutionary Union Movement, which we've brought up a few times already. So, all right. So let's, uh, let's set the scene a little bit here for uh, the story coming up. Um, by the late 1920s, the auto industry was the strongest industry in the United States. So I did, as part of this, uh, listen to a recent Rev Left episode with Professor Peter Cole from Western Illinois University. And he did talk about, you know, kind of the two red scares. So I got uh, some, some valuable information. But uh, the first red scare after World War One and after the Bolshevik Revolution in you know, the Soviet Union Radicals were not uh, particularly well-liked by the U.S. government at this time. So after World War I, the Wilson administration had some useful tools uh, for dealing with these radicals. They were called the Espionage and Sedition Acts. They used these laws against the IWW, anarchists, communists, and other sorts of socialists. Several hundred wobblies were tried in federal court in 1918 under these laws, and in 1919, Hundreds, potentially even thousands of radicals were deported to the Soviet Union using these laws, most famously Emma Goldman, the famous anarchist. So at this time, not a friendly atmosphere for leftists in the United States. This is during rapid you know, industrialization for like the auto industry and some other like steel production and radicals were kind of winning the hearts and minds of workers. So obviously the Wilson administration was using these laws to kind of put that, that sort of talk down very quickly. So not a friendly atmosphere we're going into. By, by countering uh, their, their ideas with other ideas, right? <laughs> yeah. It, it was a healthy debate. Yeah. yeah. Of course. I mean, like for anybody who does not know the history of union struggles, labor struggles in the history of the U.S., it's incredibly violent. A lot of deaths involved a lot of like armed private security guards, the Pinkertons and everything. Just uh, don't think that for any second that liberals actually want to engage in any kind of debate when it comes to workers' rights. They just want to like put you down with yeah, violence, basically. Yeah, I mean, with shit like Blair Mountain, they literally dropped bombs on uh, yeah. union workers. Unfortunately, I think one of the takeaways from this story is that going forward in the 21st century, Things are probably going to get a lot worse before they get better. You know, before we win anything, we're going to go back to strikers being killed. I think that's just capital will do what capital has done for as long as it's existed. And the reason strikers don't die today is because as of right now, unions are so weak. But get a little bit of power back and we're going to see how much those liberals really want to debate or how much the conservatives really believe in free speech. Kind of, you're right on board with us. We end every episode, it seems now, by talking about bark beetles, water wars, or some other kind of doom scrolling that we're doing lately. So you're right on yeah. board. Yeah, I mean, and that's why I think it's important to learn from this this story. Um, I think we have to be realistic in we've pursued strategies in the past. And let's, I mean, here's what they say and here's what they mean. I mean, we've got a constitution that gives people free speech, but um, I just showed you that when that free speech becomes a problem, uh, people get deported. Anyway, so um, back at this time, uh, there was kind of a different philosophy for organizing workers, and that philosophy was largely led by the AFL or the American Federation of Labor, which they covered roughly about 10% of auto workers were considered skilled workers, and the rest were just not unionized at all. They had no worker protections whatsoever. 
Um, and back at this time, if you were not working fast enough, you were beat. So it was just a very different time. There, there was no problem with management, just beating the shit out of people. You know, they would take people out of the bathroom if they thought they were taking too long. And like, they'd beat them up and they'd pull them off the toilet practically or not even practically. Like they literally did that. There were stories of that. So uh, yeah, Brandon. Wait, is it a problem if I take a moment to comment on how, like, the more I read about labor for the last 150 years, like, in the industrialized world, how little progress we've actually made? Because yep. I feel like the story that I was presented growing up was always like, oh, back in, like, Victorian England, these people had to work 20-hour shifts and blah, 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 and look at how far we've come, because, you know, school is indoctrination. They're all about wanting you to know how much better you have it but don't ask for more. You already have it so good. Don't ask for more. Yeah. And the more I fucking read, it's like, no, it's like miners at the turn of the century were getting murdered and auto workers in the fifties and sixties would just get fucking murdered. Like all of this is the story of fighting like hell and you still end up working an 18 hour day. And I partially say that because as I mentioned earlier, but I'm a little bit more lucid right now, like we're about to go on strike because nobody's getting like beaten up and pulled out of the bathroom, but they are being refused to go. Like producers are not letting people go to the bathroom to the point where like a recurring complaint that I have been coming across is bladder problems and infections and stuff like that from having to work an 18 hour shift with almost no restroom breaks. Yeah, that's gross. I read an account of a woman who miscarried on set but was asked to finish a couple of more hours before she left. Like, yeah, that's this isn't the perfect. 1950s, the 1930s. This isn't like freshly industrialized fucking London. This is a story from earlier this year. Yeah. My union has a nine hour turnaround rule that I've like had violated on for me on the second week on set. And our union is weak enough that people are just like, yeah, it happens. Just we got your back. Go take a nap in the corner. That was it. My brothers working were cool about it, but the actual union was just like, yeah, shit happens. Yeah. Pretty shitty. So Pretty yeah, shitty. Like, I know that's a tangent, but like I cannot emphasize enough that like reformist politics have failed us. Yeah. How dare no, you? Agree. You're not going on any tangents on this podcast. I know what you guys are doing in your like little rinky dink kind of podcast over there with the cars and comrades thing, but here the turn of the podcast, we stay on fucking topic. <laughs> we definitely don't break any fingers or toes. Mike's back on the bottle again. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> I just came back from getting a beer. Uh, remember that like union leader that had the uh, hidden cameras like outside of his fucking house? All of them, you mean? Well, yeah. <laughs> I know. That, like, there's like one bigger story that like came out about it. Uh, it could be Walter Ruler. J. Edgar Hoover pretty much stalked this guy for a very hated long time. Hated him. Yeah. Yeah, and Victor. Was it Hoover who said that Walter Ruther was a bigger threat to like U.S. democracy than the Soviet Union? Or no, something? no, it was. I think that was a senator. I think it was uh, Barry Goldwater, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, of course, oh my God. Oh, yeah. fuck. <laughs> didn't uh, didn't Hillary Clinton campaign for him back in the day? They scorched in. Yep. <laughs> no, no, I mean, she would have probably, but no, she did. She did. I don't know if you're kidding. No, I'm not. I'm not joking. She did. Now I can't tell if you're kidding even more. I, God damn I mean, it, please. Don't make me <laughs> Google this. I mean, if you're serious, that is just shocking. Is it really? Is it that shocking? Okay. No, but I want it to be. 
I don't know. I always thought of the Clintons as so pure and clean. And now this is tainted <laughs> my perception of them. Um, okay, so did Hillary Clinton work for Goldwater? This is on factcheck.org. She was a high school young Republican and a, quote, Goldwater girl in 1964, but swung to supporting Democrat E.J. McCarthy's campaign in 1968 and George McGovern's in 1972. Nice. Holy Imagine shit. being Wonderful. a Goldwater girl. That's like, <laughs> is That's that like worse than like the women for Trump? It's definitely worse than the Mickey Mouse Club. Jesus Christ. career supporting Barry Goldwater and fucking, who, who did you say was next? My short-term memory is still a little wonky. Well, McGovern after that, which McGovern is yeah. a little better, but... Yeah. I mean, uh, I guess that can be forgiven a little bit. I was a right winger when I was young and voted for George Bush. Yeah, uh, once. Get off the oh. <laughs> <laughs> I yeah, I mean, it's not like uh, Clinton uh, went full communist or anything, but she did. Uh, you know, I don't know, whatever. That bitch. She still sucks. Yeah, um, still sucks. Right. Since since I just barged in with my new drink and derailed everything, and uh, <laughs> no one on my drunken rant. Jaron, you probably have to go in a couple minutes. Do you want to just do your plug and then bounce if you need to? Yeah, yeah, but I'll be on for the next one when we uh, resume this story because I do want to hear the, well, not, not even just the conclusion, just the, the meat of it here. But uh, yeah, my website is jaronperlman.com, J-A-R-O-N-P-E-A-R-L-M-A-N. You can buy either one of my books there. Um, and the next one should be out this winter. But yeah, it's been nice to meet you guys. I look forward to hearing more. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Nice to meet you. Thanks for joining us, man. Yeah, sorry uh, tonight we didn't really get to a whole lot. Um, yeah, definitely Mike is back on the bottle, so anything I contribute is going to get cut in post, but we'll see how that goes. <laughs> no, right, I think we should in. leave it. All right, take it easy. <laughs> All right, later. All right, continue, Connor. Okay. At the, um, at the AFL convention back in 1935, there was a labor leader named John L. Lewis, uh, and he was the leader of the United Mine Workers. So at the convention... He created the Committee for Industrial Organization within the AFL. So this was the early CIO, back when it was still part of the American Federation of Labor. Within a year, the AFL suspended the unions involved with the CIO, and those unions broke off then to create the Congress of Industrial Organizations. So this is actually where the UAW first comes from. It was created as part of the CIO within the AFL. So then there was the split. Uh, back in 1936, and after that, it was then the UAW as organized under the CIO. That's the guy I was thinking of with the bushy eyebrows. Oh, yes. I know, that's very important. He did have very <laughs> bushy eyebrows, yes. Incredibly bushy eyebrows. <laughs> like Brezhnev levels. <laughs> and so the split happened after the Wagner Act was signed in 1935, which was the act that essentially gave unions the right to essentially exist in a legal sort of framework. Uh, and it gave the workers the right to collectively bargain. The new CIO wanted to organize all workers regardless of you know, gender, race, or skill level. So this was that different sort of approach to union organizing. Like the AFL wanted to remain with only skilled workers and frankly, white workers and men at that. The CIO wanted to take a much broader approach. So the Wagner Act is actually the National Labor Relations Act of 1935, and it created the NLRB that we're so familiar with, and it codified unions into a legal structure. So the CIO was focused on unionizing auto and steel workers at the time, because those were pretty much the largest growing industries, and they had a lot of unskilled workers and really, really horrific conditions. You know, they were brutal to workers. They literally beat their workers. Workers would 
die, lose fingers, limbs in the machinery all the time. Um, they break their pinky toes. <laughs> also, weirdly, a problem that my union is still having as of this year. <laughs> Great. Wonderful. Yeah, like we keep having people falling asleep driving home from like their 30th consecutive 18 hour shift and they fall asleep at the wheel and crash. Ugh. So like, yeah, they're not literally being beaten, but like basically exporting the violence to just after work. Yeah. Yep. Yeah, been there. Not fun. Not fun. I think, like, so I'm radicalizing myself on air right now. <laughs> Yeah, all you got to do is like think about it more, and you're just like, yeah, I'm way more radical now. Yeah, it's just I mean, <laughs> yeah, I can't wait to reminisce about my like days when I was a more conservative, like Stalinist. <laughs> I don't think you know what those words mean. <laughs> no, I'm saying I'm, I'm ready to start like seriously embracing leftism and move past like all that stuff and go full insurrectionist. Oh, I mean, just embrace the tank, dude. <laughs> you and I will get along great. <laughs> Poor Jaren just surrounded by us. <laughs> I find it funny. I, I actually, I genuinely uh, do identify quite a bit with Jaren and his a lot of his takes. But I do find it very funny that uh, while he's like actually writing books and stuff, I'm trying to get my stupid like daily driven race car put together. <laughs> yeah, when you guys said he had written books, I'm like, who the fuck are we talking to, man? I'm a fucking, I'm a laborer. I can't get my car running. Like <laughs> different folks are different folks. <laughs> Unironically, Jaron has the best opinions on our podcast. Like he legit does. And yeah. as much as like there's three tankies, one kind of unidentified that's Cosper, and then Jaron is the professed anarchist. We all follow him because honestly, like he has the best opinions. Like he's the most well-read. Like I don't know about you, Ward, but like I just I just really love China. That's my thing. Yeah, I just love Daddy G and and Papa Stalin. But <laughs> the reason we love Jaron so much is because he agrees with all our takes. Like he agrees that authoritarianism is fine as long as you're using it against Nazis. You know, it's, it's totally fine to, like, your exploitative boss until he gives you a raise, just as it's fine to lock up some Nazis until they see the error of their ways. But, um... I, so similar to that vibe, like, I more or less reject the label of authoritarianism because, one, it's always applied in a single direction, and it's always applied left. Well, I shouldn't say that. Like, there's obvious exceptions, but, like, it... When it's thrown around real haphazardly, it's always towards the left. And it's kind of dismissive of the fact that there are things that need tightly controlled. And they're usually, like, capitalists. So, yeah, like, if yeah. I'm authoritarianism, like, yeah, let's do it. I call it preemptive defense. I call it the dictatorship of bourgeoisie. Wait. No, I thought the way around. The other yeah. one. Mushrooms. <laughs> right in the fucking waves and I'm really fucking struggling one minute I think I've got it together and the other time I can't think of like words that I use on a fucking hourly basis so yeah, yeah you were good you got it sorry yeah. Connor go ahead uh, alright um, so back right to it um, so the CIO did have some early success organizing uh, General Motors plants first in the south and then in Detroit uh, unionizing Ford was going to be a much more difficult task uh, and that is where the Ruthers come in so Back in the early days, that was kind of their push was to go after the auto plants, but in a different way than the AF of L was doing it. So they kind of had this broad vision. And as part of that, the UAW was created. Now, it wasn't actually Walter Ruther and Victor Ruther were not the first presidents of the UAW, although they are probably the most famous. 
But the UAW itself was actually first run by someone else. So we will get to that. But a little bit more on Walter Ruther and just like his early life. He was born September 1st, 1907 in Wheeling, West Virginia. His parents were Valentine Ruther and Anna Stocker. And his siblings were Victor, Roy, Ted, and Christine. Um, so we don't hear too much about Ted uh, and Christine. I don't think they play a huge role in the organizing efforts, but obviously Victor and Roy did. So their father was a union organizer, and he instilled progressive values in the Ruther children at a very young age. As children, they were taught to be against racism and sexism and all that. You know, And back in those days, I mean, we were talking very early 1900s, so that was somewhat unusual. Um, their father was a lifelong socialist, I don't believe he was a communist uh, per se, but their father was, uh, in fact, a socialist, which is how Walter identified for a very long time uh, as well. Uh, now, he was the uh, Walter did become the fourth president of the UAW, and he was president from 1946 until his death in 1970, which is, of course, why we're talking about him on our car podcast. And, you know, kind of makes sense there. He was also the third president of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO, from 1952 to 1955, which, if you're paying attention, is not a very long time to be president. Uh, and that is because at that time, the CIO remerged with the AFL. And we have today the AFL-CIO. Now, throughout, uh, throughout this story, he did survive a couple of assassination attempts, um, and he did die under suspicious circumstances that many believe to be successful assassination. Of course, it looks very much like an accident, so... You know, the truth will maybe never truly be known, but we can we could probably make some guesses, some very educated guesses. It's always fun to lean into conspiracy theory and all, but it kind of sounded like it wasn't that fucking ambiguous. It wasn't. It was not. I mean, like literally one item on the entire plane is wrong and out of spec and then causes the entire plane to crash. It's like it's a little suspicious. Oh, it's not even that. Problems with more, the even more suspicious. Again, this is part two, so don't skip this part if, if you don't want spoilers. But <laughs> there was more than actually just the altimeter on the plane. Uh, there was problems with the runway and the approach that were likely problems right before landing. So it does imply that there was some sabotage at the actual landing site as well. That's right. I did see that in the documentary. Um, I forgot about that. Thank you. Yeah. And yep. I think, wasn't it the day after he uh, came out in opposition to the Vietnam War? Yes, but I'm going to go right ahead and say it takes a lot longer to plan an assassination. So, okay. Yeah, I'm going to go right ahead and, and nip that one in the bud. Um, I mean, not ironically, the most base take on his death probably was from Michael Parenti in that article and then the subsequent yeah. interview that he did. Yep. Well, it's Parenti. Yeah. Like, I mean, he's just some, <laughs> yeah. just some dude who has some good takes once in a while. <laughs> I was actually surprised. Like, a lot of my fondness for Walter Ruther is because of Parenti's fondness for him. Like, yeah, he was, I will say this Parenti was uncharacteristically kind to Walter. I think perhaps even a little bit much, I might say for Parenti, but um, I understand where he was coming from. Like we said, it's a complicated story for sure. Kind of the broad strokes here of what uh, Parenti was going for uh, in his article and in the interview that I, I did listen to, you can find it on YouTube. It's great. He described Walter Ruther as one of the most progressive labor leaders in the U.S. Um, he does note that Walter was incorruptible and could not be bought off, which is important in a labor leader. All right, you heard it here, folks. Michael Parenti's cringe. 
What? No, 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 no. All right, just to save face, I'm just connecting like half the people in this podcast right now. (laughs) Yep, Brandon, Um, enjoy the rest of your trip. Goodbye. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not allowed to stay on this long. No, we love you. Um, So Parenti did, you know, say that I would like to point out that maybe while Walter could not be bought off or corrupted, he did get a little complacent and perhaps a little bit less radical in his later years. Uh, and I think that's a, probably a fair critique. But despite that, it seemed like he got killed anyway. So a whole lot of good that did. He, he not only fought for the rank and file, but he, he did have a broader class agenda. And I think that is what Michael Parenti actually appreciated about Walter Ruther was he didn't have that narrow scope. He wanted to change society as a whole. Um, he wanted to fight for environmental protection, for racial equality, gender equality, you name it. I mean, he had a pretty broad uh, sort of approach, and he wanted the best for working people, ultimately. He may have thought that the way to get there was anti-communism, but, you know, hindsight's twenty twenty, I suppose. There was a quote uh, that I thought is actually pretty important and emblematic of his approach, uh, and that was, The labor movement is about changing society. What good is a dollar an hour more in wages if your neighborhood is burning down? Yeah, I actually really like that quote. Yeah. What good is another week's vacation if the lake you used to go to, to where you have a cottage, is polluted and you can't swim in it and the kids can't play in it? What good is another $100 pension if the world goes up in atomic smoke? And I think that sort of sentiment is what made him a good labor leader in a lot of ways. That is kind of the right approach. So he did have a lot of the right ideas. He just was a little cringe sometimes. Sounds like he was doom scrolling too. <laughs> I mean, yeah, the 20th century was all about uh, a lot of doom in, that, in the 20th century. So glad we're past all that now. Yeah, I know. I know. Yeah, things are so great now. We right? got Trump out. We're all, it's all good. Yeah. <laughs> Back to brunch. We I want midterms coming up. Don't stir the boat. That's true. Yeah. Don't do anything crazy right before the midterms. The Democrats got to win, right? Right. Good. I'm glad everyone agrees. (laughs) (laughs) So let's kind of just take a brief look at like his early kind of life and his upbringing and his later political development. So the father obviously was a union organizer and he did instill progressive values into the Ruther children at a very young age. Like he, deliberately it, w- it wasn't just like in passing they had like he taught his kids to debate amongst each other and like learn actual socialist values and stuff so they were educated in it from an early age then in 1927 uh, at the age of 19 walter moved to detroit and he got a job at ford this is noteworthy he like talked himself into a very skilled position that supposedly required 25 years experience uh, at least for the job listing. And he apparently talked his way into it. And not only did that, he actually impressed in the role. So um, he was from an early age recognized as someone who was very smart, like incredibly yeah, so. Doing cool and die work, which I can fucking attest to is fucking awful. Like it's yeah. very difficult. It's, it's actually fun in a, a certain way, but it's very difficult work. Just a yeah. tool and die work. Yeah. Okay. Yep. So he talked his way into this position. He did very, very well at it. Um, It was hard work. And that was part of him getting involved in organizing. But it was very, very hard work. And he was, in fact, good at it. 
1932, so he had been working there for five years, he was fired for organizing a rally for Norman Thomas, who was running for President of the United States as the nominee for the Socialist Party of America. Ford claimed he quit, but Walter has always maintained that he was fired for his increasingly visible socialist tendencies. So we've seen this story before. Oh, no, he quit. And it's like, no, no, I was just, you knew what was up. Um, So, of course, Ford fired him for that. This is when Walter and Victor actually took the opportunity to travel the world. And by the world, I mean, that included Europe and Asia, uh, which was Russia, China, India, and Japan, um, and obviously Europe. So this is noteworthy. When Henry Ford retired the Model T in 1927, he sold the production mechanisms to Russia uh, and American workers who knew how to operate the equipment were needed in the Soviet Union so they could teach workers how to actually produce the cars in Russia at the time. Now, Walter and Victor were promised work teaching Russian workers how to run the machines and assembly line. With that employment assurance, the brothers embarked on a three-year adventure, first bicycling through Europe and then working in the auto plant in Gorky, Russia. And they were there for about two years working in the plant. Now, it does note the auto plant in Gorky, Russia, where the unheated factories were often 30 to 40 degrees Fahrenheit below zero. Which is very fucking cold. It's true. I don't fucking buy it. It could be a little embellishment. Walter does uh, like to embellish, I think. Yeah, I was going to say, like, I read that and it immediately sent up huge red flags because at 40 below, machinery will no longer operate. Like, oh, no, your car, your car will start. I mean, (laughs) we saw some of those uh, days a couple years ago, way up north. It gets that cold and shit somehow works. I don't know, man. To me, it's, it's a red flag. It seems like tinged with anti-communism. Like, was it yes. all fucking cold? 100%, I buy that. 40 below means that in, like, 1930s sort of warm weather gear, you are so dressed for the cold. We, maybe they were willing to just throw workers into the meat grinder, but that's the sort of thing where you're wearing equipment that's going to get caught in the machinery. It's going to fucking murder you. Uh, none of the greases, the oils, the coolants are going to, like... Unless you're down to start putting antifreeze in your fucking coolant, then no, like things will simply not operate properly. Also, like you can't hold a tolerance if it's 40 below. Now, granted, right. like, manufacturing in the Soviet Union. Maybe was, you, bro. Uh, what's that? Maybe you, bro. My tolerance is pretty good. I don't know about you, bro. <laughs> okay, so my background is I've, I, for the last five years, I was a machinist and welder. So I, I can attest that uh, I've had tight enough tolerances that if I held it in my fist, it would be out of tolerance because the heat expansion, when you're talking about like one or two tenths of like my, my closest job, which I always got handed because I was one of the only people who could re- routinely hold the tolerance was plus or minus one ten thousandths of an inch. So you had to be like you had to let it sit out in the shop air for a little bit to reach room temperature before you measured it because. If I ran coolant over it, it would contract and measure small. And if I would hold it in my hand, it would expand and measure large. So at 40 below, you cannot hold a real tolerance. Yo, Brian, what's up? Um, I just looked up weather stats for Gorky, and it gets down to, like, negative 11 in the winter. But I don't see it getting... No. Yeah, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. Um, (laughs) Yeah, maybe a little bit of embellishment here. So we're hearing some exaggerations is what we're getting at. Yeah, expect to see more of those. I wanted to specifically address that, though, because to me, it's just tinged with anti-communism. 
Yeah, yeah. So, guess. I mean, if machinery is constantly running in an enclosed space, it will heat the space somewhat. So even if it is negative 30 below outside, there's no way the interior yeah. of a machine shop is that cold. It's just it's <laughs> it's a really good point. Yeah, yeah. it's just Walters of friction and heat and body heat. It's just OK. Yeah. So here's it's the takeaway. Here's the here's the takeaway. Walter Ruther was walking to school both ways uphill. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, plausible. Um, so, given this, he was you know working in these conditions. He frequently wrote letters to the Moscow Daily News, criticizing the many inefficiencies associated with how the communists operated the plants. And, and I, I did make this note. This might have a little to do with Walter's later anti-communism, probably more than a little. Um, so, the, I mean, cringe. Yeah, cringe. <laughs> there it is. <laughs> so the. Uh, Sorry to interrupt again so shortly, but did this guy literally hate communism because he went to the USSR and got cold one time? Because that's kind of what it seems like. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Communism yeah. is when cold, bro. Yeah, bro. <laughs> okay. Ridiculous. I hate to harp on this too much, but at this point, it's worth addressing that, like, 15 years before this, the USSR was, like, a peasant state. Like, it was a feudal yeah. state. Yeah. So, like, this guy's like, Oh, their industry's not super well developed in the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. Yeah, pretty much. <laughs> like, oh, communism's bad because it didn't fix every problem in 10 years. <laughs> um, okay, so anyway, Walter complained a lot about things in Russia and whatnot. And they did regularly write letters back home while they were uh, working in Russia. And this is going to become very relevant in part two or possibly part three, whatever. We'll see. But they wrote letters home and sometimes this got used against them in the future. And they were accused of being communists, which, again, Walter and Victor could not be anything further from communists. Well, I mean, OK, I suppose they could be further. But, OK, excuse me, but you get what I'm saying. So they spent all this time going through Europe, Russia, and then they went down through Asia, India, China, and Japan. And then they came back to the States. And upon his return, he became president of the newly formed Local 174 on Detroit's west side with his brother, Victor. And when interviewed about it, he kind of said that, you know, he didn't have any actual official authority to be the president of this local. But him and Victor started this local and they affiliated with the UAW and... They were just the, the leaders. Um, they hadn't really organized anybody yet, but that's, that was them getting started. So uh, with his brother, Victor, they led a successful strike against the automotive giants at Kelsey Hayes, which we'll talk about later, and they supplied brake drums and wheels to the Ford Motor Company. The main complaint was that the speed up of the assembly line was intolerable. Workers were losing limbs and even their own lives trying in vain to keep up with the ever-increasing speed of the assembly line. So... We've seen this story before. Blind speed up, people get hurt, people can't keep up, and it's just fucking horrific. It's so, and you can expect to happen when human life is treated as a commodity. Yep. Yeah, pretty much. Thanks, Taylor. Fucking gross. So, it was December 1936 when the workers pulled a surprise strike and sat down in the plant, refusing to leave until management negotiated with their representative, Walter Ruther. When management tried to enter the plant and remove machinery, thousands of sympathizers swarmed the sidewalks and blocked the doorways. Uh, Ford needed those brake drums and wheels really, really bad, and after 10 days of striking, the sides settled. 
So the first major UAW victory to unionize the auto factories had been won. Upon Ruther's insistence, women won equal pay for equal work. So this is pretty notable for the time. And that pay was 75 cents an hour. Uh, the speed up of the assembly line was slowed down and the company could not fire a worker for joining the union. UAW Local 174's... I'm sorry, what? Brian had something. Oh, I was just going to say, um, I think, was this the strike where they were um, like throwing door hinges at, nope. the, at the Ford goons or was that a different one? That was one? a different okay. one. So this was the... First use of the sit-down strike in Detroit, I believe. So that was a new strike tactic, which for listeners who may not know, the sit-down strike was different from other forms of strikes as it prevented strike breakers. So in a traditional strike, uh, workers walk off the job and they go out and they pick it. This allows management to still use the plant. So if they can bring in scabs, they can use that machinery and keep operating at least to some limited capacity. The sit-down strike was when workers actually took over the plant and they refused to do any work. So literally nothing could be done. So this was an early victory uh, using this in the North. I'm not sure if this was the first sit-down strike in the country, but certainly it was in the North. So I think there were a couple successes in the South uh, before this, but it could be wrong. So anyway, this was an incredibly innovative strike tactic and it was devastating to capital. And so this was used to win a lot of labor struggles uh, in the early days of the UAW. And of course, in this case, they were asking for equal pay for women, which at the time, women were getting paid far, far less than the men in these plants, even when those women did plenty more work than some of the men, including Victor, who did note that some of the women he worked with did like almost double the kind of output he was doing. And he made, I think, more than double what they were paid. So the company couldn't fire workers for joining the union and the locals 174 membership expanded from 200 before the strike to 35,000 within the next year. So this was the first major win. And this is essentially what started kind of the push to organize the big three, which was Ford, Chrysler and GM. So that's kind of where the story goes. And we'll talk a little bit more about the Kelsey Hayes sit down strike probably in the next episode. It is important to, to know, you know, sort of the tactics they used. So there's a little bit more to the story, but uh, that's essentially the early creation and running of the UAW and kind of where uh, Walter and Victor Ruther come from. So hopefully that was a little intro and hopefully your listeners and our listeners, our listeners definitely like the sidetracks. I like to tell myself, hopefully your <laughs> listeners do too. <laughs> I mean, I will say we, we put it up to a vote in our discord as to whether or not we would keep the cold opens which are just whatever parts of us bullshitting before we actually start the recording proper that i find it entertaining yeah. enough to put into the intro and then people voted overwhelmingly to keep that and then the only idea i've come up with so far to make our podcast slightly more quote unquote professional would be to only make that available to patreon subscribers and then have a normal episode without that but i also feel weird see, about yeah. creating a tier in that way like we don't even have tiers in our patreon because i just no, we're communists. Like, that's not... Well, we don't even have listeners, so you're one up on them. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, your stats got to say otherwise. Let's see your Podbean or your Libsyn or whatever it is. Oh, we're embarrassed by it. You don't want to see it. I mean, all of ours are from Langley, so... We, we didn't yeah. understand the numbers. <laughs> literally, like, 420, or something like that. Oh, yeah. I, there's, there's one where it was, like... 420 requests and 69 confirmed downloads or something like that, so I took a screenshot of that. <laughs> nice. It was pretty nice.
Yeah, and we're using the world's worst podcast hosting called a shout engine. So don't go with that if you're. Yeah, we don't trust the numbers you. at all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Very sketchy. It's like CCP numbers. It's like nobody, nobody believes that. <laughs> CPC, Mike. <laughs> you fucking stickler every time. Dude, you fucking trigger me so hard with that shit. <laughs> I do it on purpose. I know you do. <laughs> See, you just internalize the propaganda so much. No, I, I am proudest. Like I said in the Discord, I am most proud of radicalizing Ward because not even a year ago, this guy literally thought Trump might go to jail after getting out of office. And I was like, buddy, buddy, buddy. And now this guy, he is the tankiest tank that ever tanked. I love seeing it. Thank you, Mike. Anytime, buddy. I feel at home here. We, we just love tanks. I just think they're neat. Yeah. <laughs> Sweet. You know, I have thought about, like, maybe we could do an episode in the future about tanks, but I don't know a whole lot about tanks. I don't know. I just think that would be funny to just do a whole thing about the T-34. I mean, we but, could definitely find enough material to talk about for an hour with sidetracks about the T-34, oh, especially yeah. with you guys. Like, with the car guys, of course. Ford made a motor for one of their tanks that I could talk about for an hour. Which like, you're not going to do right now. <laughs> Wasn't there like a Chrysler one that was like 30 cylinders or something? Dude, uh, Ford made a V8 for tanks that was over a thousand cubic inches. Yeah. Aluminum block. A thousand cubic inches? Over it. Like, it was like a thousand and four, I think. And, it, and that was a V8, right? I think so. That's I think they made a oh, version of it too. The core spacing had to have been gargantuan, dude. It was. I, yeah, I yeah, bet yeah. it had a two-foot stroke. <laughs> oh my god! Okay, you don't want me to talk for an hour, but you're trying. Okay. To- I'm done. Right, 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 right. <laughs> now, ladies. Of motor. All right, all right. Yeah, that's that's that's, that's a good place to leave it. Five to six inch stroke without massive <laughs> engineering feats because you. We're underestimating the power of the mushrooms. <laughs> I know, seriously. It's all me, man. I'm all motor right now. Um, we will definitely have an upcoming series on the T34 with the Cars and Comrades podcast. But until then, let me let you guys take the floor and plug whatever social media, plug whatever social media you would like to and uh, talk about your podcast. Give our listeners, if they haven't already got an idea of where they'd be getting if they come to your podcast. But uh, just tell listeners about it and where they can find you guys. Uh, so our podcast is... Um... I mean, I'll, I'll plug the social media. I'll let Brian explain what our podcast is because he knows that stuff better than me. Um, but you, you can find Go us, ahead. I hope, I don't know. <laughs> so you can find us on all the usual social media places by searching Cars and Comrades. So we're on Instagram at Cars and Comrades Podcast. Same with Twitter, same with Facebook. We're not super on Facebook too much because we're lazy, but maybe we'll post there more. I don't know. Uh, we're also on Hexbear, which is apparently the old Chapo chat. Um, and yep. I guess they changed their name. Yeah, so we are, we're there. We're on Reddit. You know, I share all kinds of car memes and stuff. I try when I can make leftist car memes, which, you know, I, or do you got to face it? difficult. It's, I feel like that's really difficult. You know what? It works out a lot of the time. It works it, out. Like, you can. Is so fucking good at it that in the last month, two of my friends separately have hit me up like, yo, do you know, uh, have you ever heard of this Cars and Comrades podcast? Like, I keep seeing their stuff online and it sounds like something that you would be into. And I'm like, yeah, yeah, it does, doesn't it? <laughs> so I make it work. You know, you can tie the two together. So, yeah, you okay. can find us online there. And then 
you guys should also explain kind of what your podcast is uh, for our listeners as well. But Brian, why don't you explain what our ethos is or whatever? Yeah, I mean, if I had to describe it, I'd say we we talk about car stuff from a leftist perspective. I mean, I guess the idea going in was a lot of car media is like real reactionary and just kind of gross. A lot of toxic masculinity. So we're trying to avoid that as much as possible and just, you know, bring our own uh, leftist perspective. And of course, we do talk about, you know, political theory and how politics intersects with the car world. And like, I thought maybe that would be difficult going into it. But, you know, really, capitalism fucks us all in multitude of ways. So it, there's a dearth of material to pull from. But um, yeah, I guess like tried the best when we start talking about the intersection between like cars and, and like labor history because it, yeah. it's quickly linked so yeah definitely and i guess like um we've had plenty of people say like oh you all are uh you know reactionary because your hobby uh contributes to global warming i don't know we talked about this a little bit but like i forget who said this um i i want a world where um you know there's public transit and owning a car is like owning a horse is today it's a weird hobby for weirdos and make no mistake. Like if you're really into cars, you're a weirdo, like you're a nerd. Maybe it's like, has some mainstream cachet because it's a masculine hobby or whatever. Uh, but it's still nerdy, you know, like, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Appreciation for cars is like macho and, and cool, like obsessing over like the finest details of them and like stuff like that gets real deep into nerd territory. Definitely, yeah. Yeah, it's just fun. Cars are fun. Yeah, I like going fast and shit. It's like sideways. <laughs> guns are fun too. Yeah, right? yeah. So I, <laughs> I will say my infatuation with cars goes as far as Top Gear with James May, Richard Hammond, and uh, Jeremy Clarkson. That's about it. And yeah, where, which while they're fun on the show, they're fun on the show. Um, they're pretty reactionary in, oh, in real life. Yeah, they're definitely their politics are shit. I won't I won't stand up for any of them outside <laughs> of that show. But on that show, for those however many seasons they lasted on, that was my shit. But yeah. what I really liked about that was the star and reasonably priced car because I always imagined driving my Corolla around a track like that and what I could do if I didn't have all these fucking mouth breathers in the way in the left lane when they shouldn't be in the left lane because they don't know how to drive. <laughs> Like, that's the passing lane. You should be passing people if you're in that lane. Like, get the fuck out of my way when I'm on my commute to work. But anyway. By the way, um, which, which I, I want to make a note. Uh, there's forms of racing for everything, and you can be into fucking anything. Um, yeah. In autocross, I you can autocross your little Corolla. If I can bring my Corolla to autocross, and I could, I understand, but I'm not going to do that because it's just you embarrassing hate fun. for me. Because you're a, you're a yeah. fun-hating tanky. You see? I'm currently trying to get into dirt track racing, which, if I could speculate, might be the single most reactionary form of racing. <laughs> it's like, that crowd is just, like, the worst. So I cannot wait to get my own dirt track car and just be so abrasive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I, I've seen people drag race minivans, like, on a drag racing track. So, like... Yeah, but you know you guys are making fun of them. I know you're making fun of them on the sidelines. Oh, it depends. That's my point. That's my point. That's why I'm not bringing the Corolla. Okay. Building a van to drag race, so maybe I'm not making fun of them. Maybe you're right now. All right. Well, um, is there anything else you guys would like to plug as far as your podcast or your social media is concerned? No, I think that's uh, I think that's all we got. Would you mind uh, just explaining briefly what uh, what your guys' podcast is about and all that for our listeners who might be interested in some learning? 
Oh, that's sick. You guys have a podcast? <laughs> no, 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 no. If you guys like to check out the Turn Leftist podcast, it is basically, we have no nuance. We're turn leftist. Like, we're just trying to turn people leftist. So if you want to listen to a bunch of uh, unabashed red fast tankies talk about why they love <laughs> Stalin and Mao so much, and then one anarchist who will pipe in with some reasonable takes, um, yeah, come check out the Turn Leftist podcast. No car talk whatsoever. Sorry. Oh, it was much more succinct uh, than ours was. Wow, we should we could really <laughs> learn a lot from you guys. That was all on the fly. Ward, do you have anything else you'd like to add? Anything you missed? Uh, yeah, we cover current events sometimes, some historical events, uh, some debunking here and there. But yeah, mostly just red fast tankies turning people <laughs> leftist. Yeah, I'm on our podcast to debunk the myth that 300 horsepower is a lot. <laughs> it sounds like a lot to me. Trying to build my van to make a thousand. Oh, fuck. <laughs> All right, um, Ward, go ahead and plug your Instagram. Yeah, I'm on Instagram at Millennial Leftist, common spelling, no underscore. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Ward Lolly, W A R D L A W L E Y. Hell yeah, buddy. All right, so I guess for Sterling, I'll plug our Twitter. That's uh, Twitter slash Turn Leftist Pod. And then Jaron already plugged his website, of course. For Cosper, I'll plug their Patreon. That is patreon.com slash C O S P E R underscore. And then for everything else, you can find us on a Linktree at Linktree slash Turn Leftist. And I will, of course, shout out again our Patreon subscribers, Stuart, Pete, Colton, Ian, Michael, not me, El Robert, Allison, Zach, James, Raven Enigma, Marvin, Kay Frida, Not Drinking Water 69, A Second James, Mike, Mad Boy, Christian, Elam, Venture X, Jaron Has the Best Opinions, Jared, Hayden, another Jared, Bill Killionaires, Bro You Know Mark, David, Tristan, Devante, Your Mother, Charlotte, a third James, Bishop Mew, Rural Marxist, MC, John Bowie Fan 420, Aaron, Kyle, Jean Claude Manhands, Mill, Bill, Blackwater Janitor, and Jay Reese. Those are all your Patreons? Like, people actually listen to your show. That's impressive. No. <laughs> um, all right, I think that's it as far as the wrap-up that we have. Uh, is yeah, you should, guys should, one that? No, you should cut it off sooner rather than later because we're just going to keep going on tangents. They're, they're going to keep coming, so just cut it off whenever. Right. List of things we're bad at, ending the show. On that note, thank you guys for joining us. Thank you so much for doing all the research that went into it, and I can't wait to do part two and probably part three, maybe even four. We'll see how long it takes us. Yeah, I... I I think it's pretty safe to say that part two is where it starts getting really like genuinely fun and interesting. Yeah, sorry, yeah. this was the intro. Like this was just the the teaser. This is like the previews. Well, I mean, if we do car talk on every one, we'll get to part six or seven, part five at least. <laughs> like, I haven't explained like rod to stroke ratios and like why you have to be careful with piston speeds for longer strokes. So, <laughs> I mean, those are words. That it all sounds like it makes sense to me. <laughs> Yeah. Really Most sensible thing I've said today. All right. Thank you guys. All right. Later, listeners. It. See you next <laughs> week. Good to talk to y'all. Have a good night. Later. Capitalism works if it works at all because it always has socialism to bail it out and, and to subsidize it. Ask any race, any real race. It don't matter if you win by an inch or a mile. Winning's winning. In the 1980s, 50 corporations controlled most news media in America. 
by 1992, that number shrunk to two dozen. And today, only six corporations control 90% of everything Americans see, hear, and read. The money spent on the Iraq war alone, which killed one million people, 5% of Iraq's entire population, and planted the seeds for ISIS to flourish, could have covered all global investments to halt climate change trends.